this morning I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. And we'll read this psalm together. Trusting the Lord will bless His Word. And I would point out at the beginning that the title of this psalm is particularly significant. Psalm 92, a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night upon an instrument of ten strings and upon the psaltery upon the harp with a solemn sound for thou Lord hast made me glad through thy work I will triumph in the works of thy hands O Lord how great are thy works and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire upon mine enemies, and my e mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. May God bless his word to our hearts for his name's sake. This morning I want us to think most particularly on the message of verse 15 and I want us to answer the question how does rest come how does rest come before we go further let's just ask the Lord to meet with us our Father and our God now we are thankful that we can look into the word of God and it is our prayer that as we hold these words before us that thou wilt anoint this time that thou wilt open our hearts 
and that thou wilt take the word thyself through the Spirit of God and bring it home with power to every heart here. Lord, meet us, we pray. Bless us, we plead. Lord, speak to us. Lord, is our request of thee this day. Lord, now we ask that thou wilt also move within us to meet the heart needs that we have. Lord, we are gathered a people filled with varied needs, spiritual needs, heart needs. We pray that you will help us. Lord, to this end, I pray that you will help me as thy servant. I pray that you will lead me and guide me by the Spirit of God. Lord, overrule all things and glorify the Son of God this day, we pray, through the word we have before us. For we pray it in his name. Amen. As we noted a moment ago, this psalm has been entitled... A psalm or song for the Sabbath day. Sometimes the titles of the psalms simply are explanations of the purpose for the psalm. Sometimes the title tells us who wrote the psalm or who it's for, for example, the sons of Asaph. Other titles give us the method in which the title is to be sung, for example, on certain instruments or with certain singers, and these are noted in the title of the psalm. There are some psalms in which the title offers a valuable insight into the real message of the words that follow. Or the title lays a foundation for the thoughts that are about to be offered. Psalm 92 has a very purposeful title. It is a song for the Sabbath day. Now Mr. Spurgeon, in commenting on this, suggests that this title makes a very important point. And we must note that the starting point for any understanding is that the Sabbath day, or what we now see as the Lord's day, is a day of rest. Rest of all sorts. Uh, whether it is physical rest, um, certainly that is in view, though I will say that that may not be the most important of the rests that we could imagine. But we are told of God that this is to be for us a day of renewal. It is a day for the refreshing of the heart. The psalm then is intended for use on the day of rest or perhaps more accurately put it is intended as a tool in the day of rest to bring rest. Let me say that again. This psalm may well be a tool given of God in the day of rest to bring rest. So the message of the psalm is then 
a God-given message. It is a God-inspired message. It is His tool in which the heart is settled and through which the heart is brought to rest. Spurgeon also notes that the psalm is a song of praise to the Lord. We then can make a very important and helpful conclusion. That is, the praise of God. Hang with me here. The praise of God is a gracious tool by which our souls and hearts find deep, satisfying rest and comfort. Your rest of heart is tied to the praise of God. But the all-important point is that it is not the act of praise that comforts. It is and can only be the subject of praise that comforts. So in other words, what you think and esteem about the Lord is used by the Holy Spirit to do that sweet work in our hearts that causes rest of soul. Setting the mind and heart on the subject of praise does three important heart works. You would see then, as you set your heart upon the Lord, that praise to the Lord first brings rest. That's the message. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing is that this defines what rest truly is. You know, you and I may think, well, rest is when I don't have any pressures, when I have nothing that I can do. I can just sit down and just, to use the vernacular, chill, or whatever. No. True rest is defined by this act of praise to God in keeping with our hearts and minds being trained on the Lord. But also, thirdly, the subject of praise is then the embodiment of rest. This is the embodiment of rest, for rest is the Lord Himself. That, again, is the message here. Here, then, is the message that tells us where rest comes from. True rest of heart. Believer, hear this. True rest of heart for you can only be found in the person of your God. As we experience Him, rest becomes the very atmosphere of our existence. And so, with that in mind, with that being said, Psalm 92 begins. It says, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. Now, given what I just said to you, can you perhaps see how pointed that first verse is? It is a good thing. Good for whom? Good for God? Well, no, not necessarily. The Lord needs not anything from us. It is a good thing for you. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. 
Then you drop down a couple of verses later. It says the same thing in verse 4. Essentially, for thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. As I consider who my God is, and as I consider what his work is, my heart is made glad. I find myself at rest and I find myself at peace. Here is the peace that the Lord Jesus says, I give to you my peace. Not as the world gives to you, but as I give. Herein again is perhaps the means through which peace is most readily seen and enjoyed. So my proposition to you, my subject, is this. Rest is satisfaction with the person of your Savior. Your heart rests when you are satisfied with Christ. When you are satisfied with who He is, with what He has done, what He is doing in you, what He has promised you. When you are satisfied with Christ, there is a result. Do you think perhaps that's something that has... Uh, to do with the Lord's invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. No, the Lord doesn't say, go to the Pharisees and learn to do what they're telling you. He doesn't say, reform your life or think better of yourself. He says, come unto me, all ye labor that, uh, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Coming to Christ, fixing the heart on Christ, worshiping Christ, spending time with Christ, will prove to be the means of our rest. We sing from time to time that hymn by Emma Bevan. On the Lamb our souls are resting. And in this there's a, a stanza sweetest rest and peace have filled us. Sweeter praise than tongue can tell. God is satisfied with Jesus. We are satisfied as well. Do you hear what she says? Here's the source. Here's the way. Here's the method. Here's the means of peace for your soul. It is found when your heart is satisfied with Jesus. You won't be satisfied with Jesus, though, if you don't spend time with Jesus. In Psalm 92, David is exclaiming the truth that all the satisfaction for his heart is found in the Lord. And we have the final verse offering us an explanation of this truth. So I want us to go to the last verse. This verse explains the subject that I am presenting to you this morning. The verse says, To show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I will say to you this morning that here in this verse you have a statement. You have a picture. And you have a reason. And I want us to think on that then. A statement, a picture, and a reason. First, David here offers a statement. He says at the beginning of this verse, the Lord is upright. The Lord is upright. Now this statement is a very plain statement. The man who really knows the Lord and has walked with him truly 
can only come to one conclusion about the fidelity and the faithfulness of God. And that is the exclamation, he is upright. He is upright. Now I will say right off the, off the top, this would seem to be a point that is needless. Who needs to say this? It would seem that such a thought is, is something you can go without saying. And I would suggest to you that the meaning does include the obvious, which is that the Lord in his person, in his words, and in his acts, is in all ways upright. He is holy. He is perfect. The meaning, though, may also include another shade of truth that is so very important for us as believers to bear in mind, and I suggest to know. You need to know by experience this next thought. The statement that David is making is a contrast, that the Lord is upright and he contrasts him with men. Now men may be somewhat upright. And after they are believers, they may be very upright. But men fail. There's always a shortcoming with men. David here says that he finds the Lord to fail in nothing when it comes to truth and purity. The Lord fails in nothing. In other words, David is saying that there has never been and never will be an instance in which the Lord can be shown to fall short. I underscore those words. The Lord would fall short of all that is promised or all that is provided. Or even to put it in simpler language. The Lord will never be known to shortchange those with whom he deals. Now we might include in this simple truth that the Lord does not only not shortchange in his actions, but he is not short in his disposition. So we could also include the Lord is not short-tempered. Rather, he is long-suffering and forbearing. Why this statement, though? Why is it that David would make this exclamatory remark about the Lord being upright, that the Lord does not shortchange his people at any time or in any way? Why is this a summary declaration at the end of the psalm? Well, for this reason. Perhaps one of the most common plagues of the heart that is battled by all of us who are even believers is this thought. God has not done me right. Let me say that again. We all battle with the thought, God has not done me right. You think about it. When Satan attacked our first parents in the garden, and he was offering his um, debate, if you will, with Eve, 
what was the substance of his words to her? Essentially, God has shortchanged you. He knows that if you eat this, then you're going to be wise, and he doesn't want you to be, so God has not done right by you. He has somehow not had your interest in mind, only his own. Now, I would suggest to you that the devil, when he knows a good tactic, hangs with it. Because he uses the same argument against the Lord Jesus when he tempts him in the wilderness. God has not done right by you. Look at you're hungry. Why don't you, uh, why don't you make some bread for yourself? Um, God has not proven that you have all the power of God that you need. Why don't you throw yourself off this thing and prove that he's really behind you? God has shortchanged you. He used the same argument on Christ. He uses David himself, who I believe was the writer of this psalm, himself comes to the conclusion, does he not, even though that God has anointed him, Samuel has come to him and told him, you're going to be the king. There's the word of promise upon his head. He goes running through the wilderness, crying as he goes, I know that I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul one day. Let me tell you, the hard thought of God, this hard thought that God has somehow shortchanged is the opposite of faith. It is unbelief. It is accusation. In other words, it's not fair that I had to endure this. Have you ever been there? My retort to you is yes, you have. Even though you might say, well, no, not me. No, yes, you have. We've all been there. God has not been fair to me. It's not fair that I have not had this, have not been able to do that, and I can't be this, and people don't understand me the way I really am and give me what I really deserve. It's not fair. Yeah, you've been there. Jacob, when he gets to the end of his life and stands before Pharaoh, shamefully says, Few and evil have been my days. My answer to that is, really? Really, Jacob? Really? The Lord kept you at every step. The Lord provided for you hundredfolds. The Lord delivered you over and again. And you had the privilege to wrestle, as it were, with the Lord at Peniel, a privilege that the rest of us have never had. You say, well, that wasn't a privilege. Oh, boy, it would have been. Can, if you can imagine to so have hold of God that you could say to the Lord face to face as it were, I'll not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord did bless him. So how, why is he standing in front of Pharaoh saying, my days have been fueled. How old are you now, Jacob? Well, I'm 110 years old. But it doesn't matter. Few have been your days and they've been all evil. Shame on you. Shame on you. The truth is not so. I will tell you, this psalm, particularly, and I'm not excluding you children from this, but this psalm is particularly pointed at what we would call seniors. The aged amongst us. 
and those who are feeling that more and more every day. You say, how do you know that? Because verse 14 says, He shall bring forth fruit in his old age. Spurgeon, in looking at that, makes a comment, Every aged Christian is a letter of commendation to the immutable fidelity of Jehovah. The fact that you are here, the fact that you have had the grace of God in your life, you cannot and dare you not stand up in front of man or in front of angel, if you will, and say, few and evil have been my days. If that's the case, you're lying. Shame on you. David's statement is, I know rest for my heart. I know the place of peace for my soul because my God has been in all cases upright to me. He has not shortchanged me in anything. Second point, he uses a picture. He says, he is my rock. Now this picture that we have presented is a favorite of David's. He says, the Lord is his rock. Well, in how many ways and in how many applications can this word be understood? I, I'm not going to try to begin to list them for you. I will offer, though, a couple of thoughts here. Thoughts that are in keeping with the theme of rest and the finding of it. First, I would suggest the rock is a term for a solid and settled place where rest can occur even in the midst of a great storm. I have found my God to be a place in his person, in his faithfulness, in his uprightness. I have found him to be that place that is so solid and so settled that even though there's a massive storm brewing around me, I am at peace. I've always enjoyed looking at a particular picture. I've, I saw it once at a Christian bookstore. It would have been nice to have had it at that time, but um, no, I decided not. Not just then. Maybe you've seen this picture. It's a picture of a lighthouse. And there stands on the porch, if you will, of that lighthouse where there's a little railing. There's a door and then there's a man standing just outside the door. And he's looking off into the distance. But behind him and behind the lighthouse is this massive, huge tidal wave that looks like he's coming completely over the top of that lighthouse and is going to overwhelm everything. But yet here stands this man without a worry at all. Maybe you've seen that. I kind of think of David's comment much like that. I have had all kinds of things, he might say, happen around me. But the Lord is my shelter. He is my safe place. I have found in him not in his blessings that I've known through life, but in his person. I have found a shelter in the time of storm. Oh, that sounds like a hymn, doesn't it? The Lord's 
Our rock in him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm. David is simply saying that nothing can move us, nothing can harm us. For anything to move us means that the rock has to be moved, and that's not going to happen. The Lord is my rock. Well, there's another shade of meaning here, and that is that the rock is a term that suggests a foundation on which a sturdy house is built. Now, we readily think of the Lord's parable in this, at least I do, when the Lord is contrasting the man who built his house upon the rock and the man who built his house upon the sand. Does anybody know what happened with the man who built his house upon the sand? What happened to his house? Anybody, can you tell me? It was, it fell, (laughs) right, it fell flat. Not so with the man who built his house on the rock. It stood firm, didn't it? There's the point. I build my house on who the Lord is. I build the house of expectation. I build my house of my hope of life. I build the house of my looking for help. I build the house of grace. All of these things. I have a foundation for my hope and trust in all these things because of who the Lord is and what He has done for me through Christ. Further, He is the foundation on which all my understanding of truth and my interpretation of what I face is to be based. You say, what are you saying? This. You must keep in mind that in the face of all things, those things must be understood and interpreted in the fact that God is in all things the first cause. I don't go any further. I found my whole heart and soul and life on the fact that God is the first cause. He is absolutely sovereign. And again, if my thinking starts with God and not myself... I will be able to see what is true about what I see around me. And I can have peace. And I can have rest. It doesn't come, again, it doesn't come when I understand good things about me. The closer you get to the Lord Jesus, the more you're going to say with Paul, I find in me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Well, there's another shade of meaning here, and that is that the rock is a term that suggests assurance. My dwelling place. This is my home. My assurance of all that has to do with my soul is based on Him, on what He has done, and what He says. I have my insurance in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. Well, that leads me to my last point and to answer this question. What makes him a rock? What makes him a rock? So you have the reason. David gives us a reason why all this is true. And that's the last phrase. There is no unrighteousness in him. 
There is no unrighteousness in him. I say this is the reason for our great rest. Let me just ask another question. Sort of step aside and say, is it possible that the reason that we can rest assured and rest calmly and peaceably is because we know that God is all-powerful and can control everything? I'm going to suggest something to you. What if we knew that God was all-powerful, but he wasn't all-righteous? How would God be in that instance? Well, we would find him to be a tyrant. Now, let me mention something to you here. The conclusion of this ungodly secular world, those that do not know God and do not believe in his righteousness, is that he seems to be a tyrant to them. And everybody that would serve him would also be tyrants, though petty little tyrants. Those that we should get off to the side or do away with. God is a tyrant because he tells me that I can't do what I want to do. Hmm. See, they say that God is not righteous. It's not good. My point to you this morning is this. The reason that we rest in our souls is not because we esteem ourselves, but we esteem the Lord as righteous. Our God is holy. Our God is perfect. In all His ways, He will only do that which is not only good, but the most good. He will remember he is righteous to remember what Christ has done and what he has promised to him. Will the Lord let anything that he has promised to Christ fall to the ground? No, the righteous God will not do that. Will, he will also be righteous to do as he has said in his word. Can our God lie? No. No. He can't lie to me. Everything he tells me, everything he says to me, it's true, he's going to do it, as he said, in the way he said. And our God will be righteous to himself. And that he will fulfill all that he has purposed. The psalmist is saying, we will have rest, for we have a righteous God who will be found righteous. May I say that again? We have a righteous God who will be found righteous. We will know him to be so. And if we know him at all, we already know him to be so. This knowledge, as David presents it, that he is upright, that he is my rock, and that he, there is no unrighteousness in him, is how rest comes. Therefore, a very appropriate psalm for the day of rest. God is before all things. He is absolutely righteous. I was sitting in my desk last night and I couldn't. A song came to my head. I'll, I'll read the words to you. I immediately had to stop and grab my phone. 
The only one I could hear singing it really was George Beverly Shea. So I, I listened to it, but you know this hymn. It just seemed to go along with the Lord controlling all things perfectly and righteously. He sang this, and I listened. God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. For God is still on the throne. My point to you this morning, and I hope we have learned, our rest the rest of our souls, the rest of our hearts, the rest of our minds is in the character and person of our God. What He is, is our comfort. May the Lord allow this message to be that which our hearts hear truly on this day of rest. May God bless His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will bless this time in thy word. We pray that you will allow the Spirit of God to bring us to that place where we can see what you intend for us to see, that we may have our hearts fixed, fixed on the Lord, that nothing move us. Though we have feet made of clay that are ready to slip here and there, Yet, our hope is in the Lord our God. Lord, bless now this time. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Bless us as we continue before thee in this thy day, we pray. In the name of our Savior.